Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the Word today. We are so grateful to be able to just come together. Uh, we find such joy in singing together. It's infectious, Lord. Singing of the cross and Savior. Singing uh, about the faith you've given us so we can believe the words we sing. Lord, in our passage today, it's so disheartening. The nation was shown so much that they did not believe. And it causes such destruction. We thank you, Lord, for all those in this room that you have granted faith. I, I thank you on their behalf and mine that you did that. You did something. You caused us to believe. You caused us to be born again. And so now we gladly sing praises to you. Our heart is greatly warmed by those truths. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we look at this text and we see the wreckage of unbelief. What happened? That makes our hearts think of those that we love who don't know you. We want them to, Lord, and we pray that our lives would be a tool for you, that you would use that. We know we can't save them, but we pray you'd use us. And this passage will remind us of the devastation of sin. Uh, the wages of sin is death. It always has been. And yet there is a gracious God in the middle of this rejection. You are still showing your loving kindness. And so Lord, help us understand this, grasp this well today, and live it out. Thank you for this time in the Word, in Jesus' name, amen. And entitled the sermon, Wreckage in the Wilderness of Unbelief. Um, I finished my sermon this afternoon, and just went for a short little walk, and was just thinking about all of it. I said, Lord, it's just pure wreckage in the wilderness. And it's all caused because of unbelief, the lack of faith in God. And the result is devastating. And, and I think all of us know people whose lives have been wrecked because of rebellion or unbelief. And, and we find souls just ruined. Uh, it, it's a gift from God to, to know Him. And I think we, we know that as believers and we are very encouraged that God gave us the gift of faith to believe. And we react on that. So what a great opportunity. Well, this... This text, I broke it up into five different parts. We'll see if I, it's a long, longer chapter, so we'll see how far I get in it. I'd like to get through it. But um, it is a chapter that reminds us that God has these promises, that he's promised this promised land. And, 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 and we can see this in us, right? It's pointing towards a greater promised land, a greater mediator. All the greaters are this is pointing to that we see in the book of Hebrews and Romans and so forth. Uh, but it also lets us zero in on the heart of man and what happens when you reject God's promises. So let me work on my way down to this and we'll see how we'll do. First up, uh, the dark and destructive nature of unbelief. Let's look at the first 10 verses or so here and, and break this down. Then the Bible reads this way. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. Remember this great... Uh, Discussion broke out and the ten spies dominated with a negative view of, of the land. And, and right there, they rejected the promises of God that spilled into the people. And now that rejection of God is now making its way through the congregation. Look at verse 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt... Or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why did the Lord bring us up into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader 
and return to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly a good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Well, verse 1, you begin to see that this rebellious speech from these ten spies has consumed the thoughts of the rest of the nation. And this bad report among the tribes starts to sweep through them, and they weep and they wail is the Hebrew word. They wailed. Complete, overcome with massive anxiety. With all the promises of God, they're now wailing. And they do this throughout the night. Notice that in verse 1 or verse 2. And the next day there arose this attitude of rebellion throughout the entire congregation. And, 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 and this is a climax, right? It's been building. We've been seeing rejection and grumbling and a spirit of complaining that started on the edge and now has worked its way in and then made its way to leadership. And now here it is throughout the entire congregation. And so there's a massive movement of hysteria. And it's sweeping through the nation. Not too long ago, I read a study on how come crowds react so poorly together. You know, all of a sudden, something breaks out, and everybody's breaking windows, and they all go crazy, and they go, why does this happen? Well, it, it usually doesn't happen in good things. <laughs> it, it most of the time happens in bad. And, and the study that, not Christian, um, uh, worldly base, said, the desire, the desire to release your, your own desires on what you want is enhanced by others who do the same. I thought, well, that's pretty true. And we see that all the time. And groups will raid stores and go crazy and all these people will do this. Well, that's what's happening here. There's mass hysteria going on within the nation. And this started to lead to these, as we see in this first 10 verses, these great statements of doubt and rebellion against God's plan. God who laid this down from the foundations of the world, who has brought them through so much, they now make these monumental statements against God. They're complaining over the last few chapters as we've been leading up this has led to this level of rebellion. Notice first in verse 2 that they target Moses and Aaron. They are the target points. They, they're the ones that have led them here. And so they attack Moses and Aaron. And notice that the nation is longing for death. That's really interesting. Look at this. And the whole congregation said, them, Would that we had died in Egypt or died in the wilderness. The nation now who has a God of life, who has a God that freedom from slavery is saying, We want death over life. This is how bad sin will destroy your thinking of what God intends for us. We want death. It's quite troubling, isn't it? 
Notice in verse 3, quickly you see that the grumbling does not just stay against Moses and Aaron, but particularly against the plan of God. They're questioning the plan of God. And it's not hard to see that this is really a rejection of slavery. I mean, excuse me, of salvation because they want to return to slavery. And and remember, them coming out of Egypt was a picture of God rescuing people from slavery, right? And we look at this in the same terminology used in the New Testament about us being rescued from our slavery, Romans chapter uh, 6 particularly. We're rescued from our slavery and we're brought into Colossians chapter 1 to the domain of the kingdom of God and and, and so we see this here, and, they're, and, they're, and they start to attack this. And so they, they reject this very physical act of salvation that God did for them, bring them out. And now they desire to return to slavery. They reject the one who freed them. In fact, there's a clear disregard for the power of God, and they make this statement, our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Complete abandonment in the hope in God. In fact, I would argue that it was never there. And you think about this. After all the miraculous powers that God did, all the wonders he put on display. My grandson today was was showing me a frog. He was telling me, ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. And, of course, I'm thinking about all this. I'm just finishing the sermon. and, And I thought, frogs. Frogs alone. The amount of frogs that came into Egypt it's, it's a marvel what he did. And then water to blood and hailstones and then the death of the firstborn, all of that. And then he splits the seas and drowns their enemies and rock, water comes out of rocks and bread falls out of heaven and on and on. And yet our wives and our little ones will be plunder. Notice in verse 4 that there is a rejection of God's leadership and notice they make plans to select a new leader to return them to slavery. Do you think they're just going to stroll back into Egypt and say, hey, we want citizenship? <laughs> they are going back to Egypt as their intent to be slaves. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, when Nehemiah is preaching his great sermons as this 50,000 Jews have returned to the nation of Israel and the rebuilding the temple and the walls and all that's going on there. Um, he says this in his sermon. He says, They refused to listen and did not remember, now listen, the wondrous deeds which you, God, had performed among them. So they become stubborn. And listen to this. And this tells us a little more what they were doing. The narrative just tells us they wanted to appoint one. This tells us, And they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. That's Nehemiah reaccounting this. And in this reaccount here, we find that they were picking a leader. Some of the theologians I read might have been Korah, who later comes forward. We'll see this just in a few chapters. And he rebels against God and Moses and the ground swallows, and God opens the ground and swallows him. So this Bible, the Bible tells us that, that he, they were wanting to have somebody else take them back to slavery. Sin will distort your view of God. Sin will distort your view of heaven. It'll distort your view of grace. It'll distort your view of so much. That's why we repent of it, right? Jesus died for our sins so we don't have to live in this world of doubt and fear. Notice in verse 5 that Moses and Aaron's reaction to this is, 
is one of great distress and grief. I mean, they fell on their faces, the text says. And, and they fell on their faces in the presence of the entire assembly. Look at that. I think the situation was so grave, and Moses and Aaron knew that. So they call upon God, but they do it in such a way that they do it in sight of the nation. So the nation sees the seriousness of it. And doubtlessly, they're trying to influence them that we have a God. We pray to him. He listens, and he shows up. And yet, they still wanted to stone them. Later, Moses records in Deuteronomy, not only that he prayed, but he pleaded. I want to show you this text, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 25. That's what we love about the the Pentateuch. We can get fuller pictures as we work our way through it, just much like the gospel recordings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As you read each one of them, you get a fuller view. Um, This happens in the Pentateuch as well. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 25 uh, we know they're, and, and we, by the time we get to Deuteronomy, they've done the 40-year lap, and uh, now they're back at the border of Canaan getting ready to go in, and, and Moses gives these tremendous sermons as he prepares them for uh, the entry into the land. But often he revisits their sin, he revisits what happened. So to remind this new generation, remember the old, by the time you're in Deuteronomy, the old generation's gone, it's the children. And so he's now re-educating them on what happened and why, why that happened to help them prepare to trust God to go in. But look at verse 25. We learn a little more about this situation. Uh, dropping into this. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands. So this is talking about the 12 spies. And they brought it down to us and they brought back us a report and said, It's a good land which the Lord our God is about to give. Yet you were not willing to go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord our God. You grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we, and the cities are large and fortified in the heaven, to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim, right? That's the... the Probably linked to maybe further on to Goliath type guys, right? Verse 29, then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. So this is the statement that's in the middle of this. Uh, Moses is saying in this inspired text, not only were we on the ground praying, Aaron and I, but we were telling you, do not be shocked, do not be afraid of them. Verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you would walk until you came to this place. But for all of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. Isn't that beautiful? The narrative gets added to there and you start to see not only was Moses and Aaron, and as I read this, studying through this, I thought, wow, not only were they praying, they too, like Caleb and Joshua, are saying, this is what God's word says. Let's not give up on it. He'll go before us. He'll defeat. He'll fight on our behalf. As you turn back to Numbers chapter 14, notice verse 6. Joshua and Caleb, these are the two spies that believed God, right, and gave a good report. Well, out of the rebellion of all these other men, these two men come forth, right? They arise forth with a stalwart belief in God. 
they are two fun men to study. Uh, we named one of our sons after one of them. Uh, and then as we work our way, hopefully I'll have time, we'll, you know, we'll get into Joshua someday. I love the book of Joshua. But these were great men, and they're not just because they were you know, great in their own personalities. They're great because they believe God. That's what makes men and women great and, and, and men of faith and women of faith is they believed in God. Look at the Hall of Faith chapter in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews. By faith, by faith, by faith. That's the difference of them. And so the Bible highlights him. And so Joshua and Caleb had faith that was just 100% opposite of the rest of the group here. And their faith led them to see the goodness of God. Isn't that amazing? See, they look at and they see the goodness of God. The others look at it and go, oh, we're going to die. And they're going to eat our kids. That's, I mean, that's how far they got away from the truth. See, faith helps you see a God who's glorious. It helps you see his goodness. It helps you remind you of his promises. And look, when people don't have faith, meaning they're not saved, they can sing some song, walk some aisles, say some prayers, do all that. But if they don't have genuine faith, they do not see the goodness of God. Not like we do. Not like we do. They may say, oh, well, God's great. He sends rain and we got food and amen and, you know, a couple of these babies and you're good. Not Christians. Christians see the goodness of God in hard times and in good times, right? We say our God is good. He's a good God. And we see his loving kindness. And that's what they do. And I love Joshua and Caleb. They make this powerful appeal. Look in verse 7 here. And they spoke to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land we pass through and spied out is exceedingly good. They equate that to God, right? Verse 8, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give us this land and a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of this land, for there are prey. That's pure confidence in God. This is not a a great warring group of people. They're coming out of slavery. They're pretty ragtag. I'm doubtless they're not in fighting weight yet. I mean, they're living on manna, which I'm sure was good, but, um, and some quail that <laughs> didn't go down really good. Um, but I mean, this is not a warring group yet. And, and so Joshua and Caleb said, there are prey. This is how much we believe what God has done. I love the terminology here. Look at this. Their protection has been removed. That is just pure inspiration that God gives them in believing in God's promises. They have no protection. We'll walk in and take on the giants. This is a la David later, right? David said, there's no way. Well, this guy's going down because his faith was in God. And so we see this great plea from these very godly men. And this, what I call a God-centered plea, was given in vain, though. In some ways, right? God sees it and records it and we're encouraged by it. But it's because the people are so far gone in their rebellious hearts. So Caleb and Joshua here respond. response was they tore their clothes. Look in verse 6. They tore their clothes. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is a point of unbearable grief. You have to realize these men put their hope in God. They've probably been through more than we could ever imagine coming out of Egypt and making that track and being there and holding on to the promises of God. And now these 10 other men turn the hearts of the nation away and they can't believe it. They're in total disbelief. They're overwhelmed with grief and they tear their clothes. They can't believe that they're going to abandon God. 
And this is a great and mighty, humble response of Joshua and Caleb here. And they're met with the exact opposite. Look at verse 10. But all the congregation says, stone them. These guys said, there's no protection. God has given us. Let's go. These guys said, we're killing you. And so in the end, here's where the wreckage of unbelief would it led a nation to a new height of complaining. They reject God's leader. They reject God's goodness. They reject God's plan. They reject God's providence. And now they're ready to commit murder. Isn't that interesting? This is where unbelief takes you. And this is where it takes the world. And, and by God's grace, he keeps some sense of uh, law in our world. And we praise the Lord that he's brought law enforcement because when man is left to himself, look what he'll do. He'll kill the innocent. Oh, that's right, they're already doing that, aren't they? By the millions. But this is where they go. Unbelief takes you to this. Unbelief will lead you to believe that slavery is better than freedom. Unbelief will lead you to, to believe that death is better than life. Unbelief will lead you that man is greater than God. Unbelief will lead you that man's plans are greater than God's plans. And ultimately, unbelief will cause you to reject God and live without him. Or think you can. It's a dark, dark hole, isn't it? And so we preach Christ. It's the only hope for those caught in unbelief. Second thought, the wrath of God against sin and his mediator who stands in the gap. This is a blessed passage. Look at this. Verse, uh, the end of verse 10. I think this is probably where the better break is. Um, at least it seems to appear that in the Hebrew, but I think it does in English as well. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meetings to all the sons of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispose them, uh, dispose them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of his people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while the, crowd, while the cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar by fire by night. Now, if you, if you slay these people as one, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughters them in the wilderness." But now, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord, he's declaring what the Lord says, the Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of, of the fathers onto the children of the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Wow, what a statement. You see how just jam-packed this is to try to get through. But, but first of all, just think about what's going on here. There, maybe there's a temptation to think that God is not present when there's rebellion, right? We see God is holy, so we see him holiness. One of the aspects of holiness is it's absent from sin. And, 
And that's why heaven is so beautiful, because there's no sin there. But, but God, that's, that's not completely true. God sees sin and often comes and comes down to judge it. And so certainly there's, there's just the opposite taking place. There's great rebellion happening in the nation. And, and God, in each time we see, as we follow down this timeline, every time there's rebellion, he shows up in a spectacular way. Chapter 11, verse 1, he comes and fire comes out and he destroys the edge of the camp, getting some of those who were, were the mixed multitude most likely. And, and then we, we see Miriam and Aaron challenging Moses' authority in chapter 12. And, and the Lord comes and the next thing we know, Miriam's white as snow with leprosy. He shows up in spectacular ways and he's doing it again here. Our sovereign Lord not only knows all things, but he sees all things. He is, he's certainly omniscient and omnipotent, but he is omnipresent. And that tells us he sees everything. The writers of the Psalms pick up on this. Psalm 69.5, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly. Listen to this. And my wrongs are not hidden from you. Isn't that amazing? He sees all. When David repents of his sin with Bathsheba, he's, in chapter 51, verse 4, he says, against you and you only I have sinned, now listen to this, and done what is evil in your sight. It's the mark of an omnipresent God. He sees all, and so he sees this sin, and at the height of this complaining, the height of this rebellion, this desire to murder, here comes the presence of the Lord right into the tabernacle. And I'll tell you what, I'm not going through, I mean, what they saw with Miriam, you would think this people would have said, uh-oh. As the glory of the Lord fills this temple, and it's not, it's not worship time, he's come down to deal with their sin. And he doesn't speak to the people here. He speaks to Moses. Notice verse 11, he, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Well, notice there's two questions that the Lord asks Moses. They both begin with how long. As a rule, most of the time when we see that question, it's usually written by man to God, right? David says that for how often will the wicked prosper and stuff like that. But here, God is directing the question to Moses regarding the nation. And these questions make us wonder, uh, has God, has he reached his limit with these people? And it sounds like he has when you look at the text, right? He's done all these marvelous things that should have aroused great faith. Should have aroused great obedience. And that's why we say, look, faith is a gift from God. Because you look at this and you go... Why doesn't everybody just fall on their face? Why doesn't everybody go, yes, he's given us, let's go. These are the promises of God because they don't have faith. Now, look what's happening. When you start to look at this, the same destruction that swept through Egypt, God is saying he's going to sweep it through them. Look at verse 12. I will smite them with pestilence and dispose of them. I'm going to dispose of them. I'm going to get rid of them. He got rid of an entire army of Egypt, just like that. Let them into the water, drowned them. He can do that. And he's righteous and perfect in all that he does. And I will make them, excuse me, and I will make you into a greater nation, mightier than they. I'm going to bring pestilence on them. 
I mean, that word should have brought things up. Gnats, frogs, hail. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Coming from an omnipotent God, I am going to dispose you for you. Without faith, they didn't see it. And it's exactly what he did in Egypt. And here he's warning of them. And then he makes this statement. This is fascinating. I will make you, Moses, into a greater nation and a mightier than they. Well, this is a statement from God. Listen, one, the first thing this says is it threatens the very existence of the nation of Israel. Moses does not, has, Moses does not have the line of Jesus in it. doesn't. He, he's coming out of the line of Levi. He is not in the line of Judah. This is, this is a threat against the wiping out of this nation. But we know, we know that God time and time again tests his mediator. He tests Moses to see if he believes in him. And he's wanting to reveal to him if there's any rebellion in Moses. And when we study Hebrews, we see that the Bible says that the Lord perfected our Lord, Right? Not, not that he wasn't perfect, but challenged him and tested him and he was tempted in all ways to show that he was perfect mediator. He could go to the cross for our sins. He could mediate for us for eternity. He was so perfect and, the, and our God tested his son. And we see that happening in this great text and he's done this before. Exodus chapter 32, in fact, when you get into that text, and I don't have time to run there, but you'll see that Moses is praying the same prayer that God said, that God made a statement about himself, revealed the character of himself on, on Mount Sinai there. He's now praying that. And that was a great response. But this is, this is serious. This is, this is a serious threat from God. In Psalms 106, the writer, the psalmist there, verse 23, records this. He says, therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, hit, now listen to this, his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away the wrath from destroying them. And if that doesn't make you think of Jesus, I, I don't know how to get you there, right? Because this is Jesus standing in the gap of the wrath of God that was deserving in us. That's what that's reflecting. And, and that's why we go on to Hebrews and we see that he's the greater, he's the greater mediator. The Father is bringing his wrath. The Son stands in our place, takes that wrath, shields us from that, gives, takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And I read this verse, I thought, wow. And Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach. That's Jesus. He stood in the place of our damnation. And God poured his full wrath on his son because the wages of sin is death and he took every bit of it. And he satisfied him. And this is exposing, this is looking forward to such a greater mediator than Moses was. Moses is going to, we'll see in a couple of chapters, he's going to get ticked off of these people. He's going to strike the rock and speak on behalf of God in a wrong way, right? And it's going to cost him the promised land. It's a reminder that Moses was not the Messiah. But Jesus stands in that gap. Verses 13 through 19, we just see this great mediator work. And it encourages you as you study this. And you'll notice that Moses speaks of Egyptians who had firsthand knowledge of the liberation of the Israelites in verse 13, right? And the devastating cost of 
being under the power of God. He, he says, look, the Egyptians will hear of it. They saw what you did. He's rehearsing the great wonders of God to him. He is not in any way uh, threatening God or, or trying to uh, impose his power over God in any way. He's reminding God of what he has done. And also notice that they would, they would have known the power of God and it would have made it to the Canaanites. you see that in there? This, then the Egyptians will hear of it by your strength and, and you brought your people out of the midst and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. Tell them what? Well, he brought them out, but he can't get them in. And here's what the mediator does. I'll take it. I'll stand in you and I'll communicate on their behalf. I'll, I'll remind you of what you've done. That's what our Lord did for us. Both Egypt and all the enemies of the nation of Israel would have known about what happened in the wilderness as well. You can see that in these texts. They would have known that he split red seas and fed them bread and flew quail in. They would have known that he has his presence with them, that it was visible and it had been communicated to, to the enemies of Israel. Moses, look, look, when you read this, Moses does not want the fame of his beloved God diminished in any way. Is that what we want? Does it bother us when God's fame is, is attempted to be diminished by this world? It should bother us. Moses does not want that in any way. This is a godly man. He doesn't want God to be thought of that his promises are not, not going to be fulfilled. He believes he has a great faith in God and inspires us. And, and look, Moses is coming from a human perspective here. He isn't divine. He, he's coming from humanity, right? And he's speaking in that human way. Oh, God, help me. I believe in you. You've done these things. We see Jesus do that in his humanity at times. Oh, God, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. Speaking in that weight of knowing what he was about ready to do, in full humanity, realizing the weight of our sin was going to fall upon him, but not my will be done, but yours. Such parallels here that we see. Moses is there to glorify God. And he would... Never want his name to be at stake or his omnipotence to be questioned. Look at 15 and 16. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. What a statement. Here we begin to realize that Moses, he loves God. And he doesn't want God's reputation tarnished at all. And so he now does something amazing. And I think 17 and 18 probably struck me the most as I studied this. He uses God's own words as he prays back to God. He takes the very words of God. Look at verse 17. But now I pray. Now we know what he's doing on his face in front of these people. He's, he, in a sense, is preaching a sermon to him while he's doing this. But I pray, let the power of the Lord be great just as you have declared. Now here's what he declared. He takes the very words of God on Mount Sinai. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations, end quote. 
Isn't that amazing? And there can be no more perfect words of prayer than praying the scriptures, right? If you struggle with praying and and you want to work on your prayer life, it's a great way to do that. Pray the Psalms to the Lord. Pray the Lord's Prayer, not as some kind of, you know, thing that you do, but it's a beautiful prayer that exalts God and puts yourself in, in submission to Him and your needs. Pray God's Word. It's the only infallible prayer, right? And that's what Moses is doing here. God's Word reminds us here in this prayer that He is full of loving kindness and forgiveness. <laughs> Moses goes to the character of God as he appeals to him. He appeals to the character of God. I, I thought long and hard of this. Times I, I, w- I said, man, Lord, I wish I would have come to this when I was praying for a son or, or somebody who was lost or someone who was caught in sin. Lord, you are loving kindness, God. I wish I would pray this prayer right here. You're, you're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness. I think I'm going to start that more often. You're, you're forgiving. You forgive iniquities and transgressions. I mean, that's a great prayer, right? When you have somebody you know who is outside the faith and and you're worried about their life, you should pray that. But you also know that God is a God of justice because the next phrase tells you that he will put sin upon them. And and third and fourth generation doesn't mean just he's mean, he's just going to pass it on. It's saying if repentance doesn't stop it, that's what happens. And we see this in life, right? Repentance and Families abandoned Christianity and abandoned truth and don't want any part of it. And, and it just keeps cycling and getting worse in their families till all of a sudden God does something miraculous and saves somebody and breaks that chain. Some of you are those people. Some of you don't have family that's believers or parents. And God broke that chain. Now, don't, don't miss this also, that Moses is standing in the gap between the wrath of God and his people. Uh, it's, it, look at what he says in verse 19. Pardon, I pray. I pray, God, pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. That statement is amazing. He says, just don't say, oh, okay, I'll, 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 you know, I'll overlook this one for the tenth time. No, do it because you're a loving, kind God. Every one of us who know our sins are forgiven should come to this verse and go, that's exactly what he did with me. He's a great God who forgave my sins, pardoned me. My death sentence was due, and he pardoned me. In fact, not only did he pardon me, Christ took the death sentence for me. What an amazing statement. And so on behalf of this nation, he pleads with them. This people according to, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And that's what the Lord did. And so I see the beauty of this mediator here. And and though it is Moses, it's pointing to a greater mediator. And Romans tells us that Christ is the greater Adam, right? Romans chapter 5, 14 through 15. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression one, the one made many die, much more did the grace of God and the gift of that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. 
So he's the greater Adam, and then Hebrews tells us he's the greater mediator. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. And so Jesus is now that intercessor, but he's also that mediator of the new covenant here. And this points towards that. And when you look at verse 19, it is Moses standing in the gap between God and his people. And we know that's looking forward to that. Jesus stood in the gap for us, didn't he? And he took what we deserved. One last thought in this little section here. Um, it's, it's impossible not to see that our God cannot be true to himself. He always keeps his word, doesn't he? So we know this is more than just uh, God kind of going, well, I, I, I am just being mean. It's God proving himself to this nation and particularly to Moses, yes, I am a man of my word. I will not go against it. It's a test. And he puts Moses up against it. And when his children will rest in his promises, he delights to hear their prayers. And all this is because God is faithful to himself. And that's what Moses appeals to. God, this is who you are. I appeal to your character. And God says, I accept that. Because I can swear by myself and no one else. Third thought here, there's a divine response in the human responsibility versus 20 through 25. Look at this little section here. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, for indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now that's interesting, dropped in there. We'll come back to that in a second. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to this test these ten times, have not listened to my voice. Shall by no means, these shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he enters, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And now the Amalekites and the Canaanites lived in the valleys, turned towards now, turn, now turned towards. Uh, tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Well, this divine response here now comes very quickly, doesn't it? Moses has been interceding, and now God responds divinely quickly. And what he does, first of all, is he pardons, and he receives the prayer of Moses, and he pardons them as Moses reminds him of his own words. But in verse 21, we see that God is both glorified in all that's done here, that's very interesting. But notice the conjunction there in verse 21. It reminds us that God receives glory not only in his loving kindness, but in his what? Judgment. See, notice the phrase, all, all of the earth will be filled with my glory. Well, unless you're a universalist and you think that everybody gets in and God just waves the believe in Jesus only to get here clause, <laughs> This tells us there's something greater that his glory is coming from. It's not just those who put their faith. There is glory even in judgment. And we see this in a, in, a, in a letter by Paul, Romans chapter 9, 22 and following. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, 
i.e., that's all these people who rejected him at the promised land. He's very patient with them. He pardons them, he forgives them, sends them out in the wilderness until he dies off. This is him doing this. And, and this, of course, this verse is not just about them, but it's a great example. And he did so to make known. Now listen to this. He does that. This is what he does. He, he's patient even with those who are prepared for destruction. He does this to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand. We see his glory. When we get to heaven, he judges the goats and he sets the sheep apart. You will magnify him. And that's hard to get our mind around it. I've had to think through family members that I know rejected Jesus and await eternal judgment. In this flesh, in this life, it's very difficult to get my mind around. But when I see him and I'm like him, we will praise him. All of the earth will praise him. That means people from every walk, every tongue, tribe, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are in heaven, will praise him for his judgment. It's astounding, isn't it? And so look, because he, he's not saying, well, I'm going to let them off and maybe I won't make them go in the wilderness and all die off. No, they are going to go to the wilderness. They are going to die off and he's going to be glorified even by that judgment because he's a holy God. And when you don't believe, you die in your sins. When you believe, you go to the promised land. This is all separation of sheep and goats right here in, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, dim view of what's coming forward. It's fascinating, isn't it, as you think about this? Notice in verses 22 through 24, this report goes through the people that they're pardoned. Um, and, and notice they're not annihilated, right? He could have just, he did it, right, just a few chapters ago. He just annihilates the people on the outside. Just gone. The fire just consumes them. And, and though they're transgressors, they're not annihilated, but they will not enter the promised land. And notice that the Lord says that he, under oath, he swears, verse 23, that not one of them who have experienced his power and mercy in Egypt and in the wilderness, not one of them who have been in rebellion are going to come into that promised land. This, this is a clear result that there is no back door into heaven there is not, well, let's keep our fingers crossed that God's just going to be gracious. My uncle used to always say, well, your God, you talk about grace and love of your God all the time. He's just going to let me in anyway. No, he's not. He has another door for you. And it's a door of eternal perishing and judgment. And this reminds us that that's as his God is. You must be right with him in order to come into the promised land. And all these children of theirs, uh, those who rebelled, they get to come in. Notice in verse 24, and Caleb, he's singled out. And, and I love that because it, it's saying this is the reward of faithfulness. This is the reward, Hebrews chapter 11, of those who diligently seek me. I have a reward for them. And indeed, Caleb and his descendants, they, they later get it. Joshua tells us in chapter 14 that Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron. And he goes in there and he just kicks the rears of the, the giants there and he takes over the land and his descendants live there for many, many years. Because Caleb believed God. Now that may not happen to us. You go, well, I'd like to go take Pearson on and wipe them all out and get it. This isn't health and wealth. But I'll tell you what, God will strengthen you to stand and do things you never thought you would do if you just put your faith in him. Trust him. Trust his word, believe it. 
You know, I had a Sunday school teacher uh, when I was a, a young man, junior high, high school, going through, and he, I, I might have said this before. He'd, I'd never forget him. He would be up the board writing all these things, and he'd ask us questions. We'd raise our hand, you know, and we'd, we'd have the answer, and he'd go, that's a good answer on, Monday, on Sunday school, but how about Monday school? I always, I've never forgot Monday school. <laughs> Sunday school is one thing. Monday school is another thing. What does all this look like for us out there? Are we going to believe God's promises? Are we going to hold to that? See, that's what, that's what solves our marriages. That's what solves our parenting. This is what helps us in this life of, of difficulties and, and cancer cells and things that hit our way because this life underneath the sun is distraught with the fall of man, right? There's, if you don't have the promises of God and hold on to those, oh my goodness, you've got a really, really bumpy ride coming. And not that life is perfect and rosy. I'm just speaking with people in the hospital today, members of our church going through difficult times, praying with them, reminding them of the promises of God to help them get through that. That's, this is what this is for, to remind us. This section, also we wrestle sometimes with the statement of God changing his mind or relents, right? There's a divine pardon here that seems like... God was saying one thing and then now thinks another thing. But though it may seemingly be paradoxical to you, there's great truth here. And it makes you ponder and further think about the mystery of God and how he collectively works his divine sovereignty with human responsibility. It got me thinking and I looked up the Westminster Confession on this on. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it reads this way. Of course, it's older English, but it reads this way. God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as whereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, what the Westminster guys were trying to say is God establishes both his sovereignty and the human responsibility. And both sides of the coin must be held in equality, right? And, and you can't diminish one of them because God has control over all of them. And I think God is testing Moses and and through his response, which he also has control of. So he has his sovereignty and he has Moses' human responsibility. He brings all of that together to bring about his will. You know, Scott, what's another example? Judas. Judas, a son of perdition, son of destruction, spoken of in the Old Testament, prophesied of what he was about to do. And yet he does it on his own volition. He does it on his own free will. And yet the sovereign of God is tied right together. And the mystery of God brings about his portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill all things. He dies the way scripture tells him he's going to die. All done. And he did it under his own free will. Astounding, isn't it? That's the depth and breadth of the sovereignty of God. And I think that's what's happening in this passage. I'm going to wipe them all out and stall her over you. Moses, down to the ground. Oh, God, let me remind you who you are and what you did. He's using all of that to bring about his will, to show who he is. One last statement in verse 25. Notice that here the very next day that the Lord directs them back to the Red Sea. 
I, I thought about this, and it's, I think it's very interesting. You want to go back to Egypt and back to the wilderness? Well, I'm going to point you right back there. And, and, and again, just coming from that area, Gina and I were just there a few months ago. You're going, oh my goodness, you morons. The walk there alone is going to kill you. You're right there. Now you're going back because you want Egypt and you want wilderness and you want death over life. He says, great, I'm sending you right back. And the path they go back was treacherous. And there they died one by one in the wilderness. Now God's long-term goal is to bring their children in. The rebellious generation will die off. They'll drop dead. They'll leave graves throughout the wilderness. And only the children will come in. And Deuteronomy is a beautiful book, and we're going to get into that because, it's pre- as I said earlier, he's preparing that new generation to go in. Fourth, the deadliness of faith- faithlessness. The deadliness of faithlessness. Look at verses 26. I want you to just, just kind of skim because of my time. Let me work through this. Um, this is a, a, another facet to this. Moses and Aaron are now instruct it to inform the people of the sentence, right? He says, look, I want you to tell them this is the, sen- the sentence that's being passed on to them. And so this entire faithless generation, except Caleb and Joshua, they're condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one, day for, one year for every day they spied out the land. You went in for 40 days, you came and rejected me and turned this nation with your, with your complaining spirit and your lack of faith, now you're going back out there for 40 years. And you see him do that in verse 34. And again, there's just this grim reality of the desire to live, uh, excuse me, to die in the wilderness is granted. You want to die in the wilderness? Great. Here you go. This is, see, that's what faithlessness leads you to. And, and people can put on a really good religious... These are religious people, right? They've already got the tabernacle set up. They're offering sacrifices. They're doing all of this. They're going to always kill these lambs and these bulls and let's offer grain sacrifices. Let's do all this stuff. And yet, when it comes to the point to really believe in God, no, we don't. They're religious people who have no faith. That's kind of scary, isn't it? And here they go. And there's a grim reality here. Their complaining spirit exposes their faithlessness... And the result is the sentence of death. The message of this section, when you look at 26 through 38, is this. They brought, their pro, uh, the, they brought the prohibition of going into the promised land onto themselves. When you read this section, they brought it on themselves. This is the result of their sin. Their, their faithlessness was unsuitable for the promised land. Now, I want you to think about that. Faithlessness, unbelief, it is not suitable for heaven. There will be no one in heaven who does not believe. Period. And so this, remember, we can study all this and these are all narratives. You know, well, why did the nation do this and all that stuff? Hey, this is all pointing us to something greater. The only people who go in, they go in by faith alone. It's not suitable Heaven is not suitable for those who do not have a God-given faith. By the grace of God, he lets the children in, and they would see what their parents would not. In verse 31, you can see that. And then there is one more grim footnote here. Verses 36 through 38 has to do with the ten spies who were instrumental in spreading this 
rebellious message, right, that they begin to wail on and revolt on. And what, what this message is, is your faithful, faithlessness. You presented a deadly message, and now you're going to see the deadliness of it. And they, they get this plague put on them. And uh, you can read it for yourself. These men are plagued. They died by a plague before the Lord. And all of the nations watching this, right? Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And let me say this. Praise God by the grace of God because he's given us faith. We don't get what we deserve. That's what makes us sing, isn't it? How many of you today were perfect? None of us, huh? And yet our God loves us. And he sees us in his loving kindness. And he's taken our sins and put them on his son, and they are forgiven, and he chooses never to bring them up. That's how great his forgiveness is for us. And we find great joy in that. I'm sorry, was that me? I don't know what it was. Last point, i got to go quickly. The, 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 the product of faithlessness is works righteousness. This is a very interesting section. You know what happens here. Let me just read this real quick. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Well, yeah, you're going to go die. In the morning, however, they arose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to this place which the Lord has promised. A little late. But Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord? The commandment of the Lord is you're going to the wilderness now. When, when it will not succeed, do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you. And you will fall by the sword. And as much as you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the country came down, struck them, beat them down as far as Hormah. Well, this section, last one, reminds us that true repentance does lead to salvation and worldly sorrow just produces death, right? And that's what Corinthians says. 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's a sorrow that leads to the will of God. It produces repentance without regret leads to salvation but there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death this is a worldly sorrow right they mourn greatly in verse 39 but is a worldly sorrow it was not of god and so what it ended up is just leading to death and instead of allowing god's righteous judgments to pass over them and bring them to repentance they mustered up this self-righteousness right the self-righteous conviction and tried to fight their way into the land in verse 40 and they have a loose connection on my mic sorry um, and in spite of Moses' warning, they, they push ahead. And it just simply confirms their faithless behavior. It confirms their rebellious and hard hearts. And even though God had passed his divine sentence on them, they thought they knew better. They're still rejecting the word of God. Oh, God said we're going to the wilderness? No, we're not. We're going to go up here. We know better, God. We know better. And the truth is, 
that God wants more. He wants far more from his people. He does not want faithless behavior. When he says, this is what I set for marriage, for gender, for whatever, um, this is what I've set for you to live in this world to bring pleasing and glorifying acts to me that I've prepared in advance for you, do those things. <laughs> not what you want. We have churches being thrown out of the SBC because they can't obey simple truth that God says between the role of men and women. It's as clear as can be. We're going to hit it on it Sunday. And yet, no, we know better. Praise the Lord, the SBC threw them out. Notice they went up heedlessly. It's the rejection of God. And so this is a willful disobedience that results in hard hearts. And listen, we got to check our own heart first. Lord, is my heart hard? Am I in disobedience to you? Lord, show me. I want to, I want to be right with you. But this is also helps us understand why family members and friends or people, why they do what they do. God says this, they do that. We understand that their hearts are hard and their faith is. And in the end comes destruction. I'm out of time, but there's so many parallel chapters. Just, I want you to jot these down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I was in this not too long ago. But there Paul uses this in several other situations in the book of Numbers and, and uh, Deuteronomy to show that this, they were so rebellious and he's warning the Corinthians that they're going down the same pattern as those that the nation of Israel did. And then the writer of Hebrews does very much the same thing. He says they didn't enter rest because their, their lives were not mixed with faith. He's showing the total difference. I got 30 seconds. I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 3. Because you got to see this. Because this is what happens. This is, this is the writer of Hebrews summing up what has happened in their, their relatives, their forefathers' life. Verse 2, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, you can really start about verse 14 and pick up the context of their hard hearts and how they provoked God and, and, and he was angry with them and sent them into the wilderness for 40 years and he, made a, he swore by himself that they would not, verse 18 of chapter 3, they would not enter his rest because they were disobedient. So we, so we that were, were not able to enter the rest because of unbelief, that's the key, right? Verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore let us... Fear if, while the promises remain to enter his rest, any one of you may seem to have come up short. You're faithless. You don't believe that Christ is the only way in. You always want to add just something else. Verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. God provided a way, the good news of how to get to God, how to come into his promised land. It was preached to them as a forerunner to the full picture of the gospel. But the word they heard did not profit them, look at this, because it was not united with faith. That's why people's hearts are hard. That's why they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not united with faith. And I read this and I say, God, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be united with faith. That's why we're worshipers, right? We received what we did not deserve. And so we preach this beautiful gospel message to those who reject Jesus, those who are faithless. Keep preaching the message. Preach it to yourself first. Live it and look for every opportunity to let people know there's a way to escape the judgment of God. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great passage. Lord, I, I don't think I did it justice. Um, there's so much here. 
that magnifies you and we understand you and we understand sin and death and salvation. All of these truths that we cling to, Lord, are in this passage. And I pray that all of us would come away with a, a clear view of our great, kind, loving, kind God, but a God who's holy. But Lord, I pray we would come away, if we are truly believers, that we realize we were pardoned. And our pardon wasn't to send us in the wilderness. We are pardoned to come into the kingdom of God, into the promised land. And that's all done by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for each and every one that's here, Lord. Please bless them. Give them sweet rest tonight. But as we lay our heads down, may we thank you for our faith. May we thank you that you have provided. And we will enter your rest. We already have. We rest in Jesus Christ. Not in our own works. We rest in him. In him alone. That's salvation. And so we know someday we will rest with you for eternity. Lord, come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.